Hello, everyone, and welcome to iCritic Live. This is the podcast where we discuss entertainment, pop culture, and life in between. I'm your host, Kevin D. Rodriguez, film critic of iCritic.net. Thank you so much for spending a few minutes of your time here with me today. And we've got a few things to talk about. Uh, I definitely have thoughts on some news items. Uh, the main topic is going to be about Denis Villeneuve. So for those of you who want the Denis Villeneuve story, that's going to be near the end. Uh, but I do want to comment on a few other things first, and we will do that briefly but thoroughly. So the first one I want to talk about is Coyote versus Ugly. Not Ugly, I messed up already. Oh, well, it's live. We're not going to change it. Coyote versus Acme. Yeah, um, folks, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, I think this movie has officially been shelved. Now, I have no proof proof of that. And in fact, really nobody knows what happened to the movie. But that kind of adds to the credibility that Warner Brothers Discovery just wrote it on a balanced spreadsheet. Now, they had their fourth quarter earning results last week where it was expected that we would get some clarity on Coyote versus Acme. And the thing is, it was not brought up at all. Now then, Cartoon Brew, a wonderful website that you should definitely follow if you love the animation industry, did a post on X and other social media accounts that no news is good news, that nothing was brought up. But during that call, we did not hear that Warner Brothers had taken a $115 million write down on various projects, primarily from the animation division, because they are, you know, retooling or they're going in a different direction. Now, here's the thing. We don't know what is in that $115 million write down, but considering that the language they use, like, you know, we are pivoting and we are restructuring our animation business and strategy was used as the initial reason for why Coyote versus Acme was going to be shelved. I think it's a pretty safe bet that that's in there. What also might be in there is the Salem's Lot remake, because Stephen King brought up that this movie was filmed a long time ago, and it's being held back, and he doesn't know why, and no one's talking to him about it. And, you know, I could see that conceivably being part of there, too. Um, There might even be some projects that were outright canceled before we even heard about them. This is also true. But the fact that Warner Brothers is not actually coming on the release, I just can't help but think, you cowards. You cowards. You know people want to see this movie. You know that it will make more than $30 million at this point. You know that someone's willing to give you at least $40 million for it. You know, as a Warner Brothers shareholder, this is very, very troubling. You know, they should not be hiding the what their product and what they're doing behind vague spreadsheets. I want Warner Brothers to be fully transparent about what it is they are doing with their movies. And the reason they're being cowards about it is because we're at the point where it makes no financial sense to scrap this film. None whatsoever. It's finished. You have other buyers out there who will pay more than what the write-down will be, or the write-off, I should say, Um, because it should be noted that the article, the Hollywood Reporter article that broke this story and said this was a write-down made a mistake. They meant to say write-off. Keep in mind, a write-down is something that has less value than before, but a write-off is the value of said write-offs is 
zero. It's basically worthless at that point. So there was $150 million written off. We don't know what it is. As a shareholder, I'm getting concerned about the vagueness of this. It's like, well, what is in that write-off? And why do you insist on being so stubborn about this movie when people clearly want to see it? And by all accounts, unlike Batgirl, which, look, I, I do not agree with them shelving Batgirl, but two very big differences. One, it technically wasn't finished yet. I mean, it just needs another $20 million more, but yeah, if you don't want to spend that extra $20 million, then that makes sense to scrap it. But secondly, by all accounts, this movie was not good. It was not a good movie. It might have been another Madam Web where you watch it and it's like, what were they thinking? And it's like, well, uh, maybe they're scrapping it because they don't want us to have that reaction. But by all accounts, Coyote vs. Acme is very good. And, um, you know, here's the thing. I'm going to spoil this. I don't know if I'll actually be able to do anything about it. But as a WB shareholder, I am talking to some law firms that specialize in class action lawsuits, because I think as a shareholder, I deserve some answers about what is happening with these movies. What's, what's in these write-offs? Like, is David Zaslav, the CEO, ho holding back from me as a shareholder? Because here's the thing, if he can get $1 more than what the tax write-off was worth for this movie, then he, as my employer, because Zaslav works for people like me, the shareholders. He deserves to sell that movie and make me, the shareholder, more money. If he is withholding money from my stock value because he wants to save face or something, he doesn't want to like sell to Paramount and then find out, oh, whoops, the movie was a big hit. You know what? That's just not right. So, by the way, if there's any other uh, Warner Brothers Discovery shareholders who feel this way, um, look me up on X or um, email me in the podcast description. Uh, maybe we could get this class action lawsuit going because I think the money that we have put into this company is being wildly, wildly mismanaged. So anyway, that's the Coyote versus Ugly. <laughs> Why do I keep saying ugly? Why do I keep saying ugly? Oh, well, it's live. What can I say? So uh, let's move on to the second topic. Uh, this one probably should have been first because it's uh, much simpler. Uh, it has been announced that Pixar will be making their first full-length musical, which will star Ducks. And it's eyeing a 2027 release. Now, first thing, great. I always love to hear about an original movie that's coming from Disney and Pixar. Uh, second, really, musical for the first time? That's great. And uh, yeah, so I'm really happy about this. Uh, I mean, of course, I'm also having flashbacks to the Ants and a Bug's Life War because, you know, we just had migration from Illumination. And I actually liked Migrant quite a bit. I thought that was, like, by far uh, one of the more charming films that Illumination has done right next to Sing. But Pixar wants to do a Ducks movie that's a musical? Well, okay, I am all for it. But this has actually led to a lot of people discussing online, like, wait, didn't Pixar already make a musical? Didn't they make Coco? And I want to take just a moment to give my personal opinion. This is someone who's been watching movies for a very long time, who actually loves musicals. Musicals is one of my favorite genres. My opinion, Coco is not a musical. <laughs> Coco is a movie that has a lot of songs in it, and the songs are important to the story. It tells the viewer a lot about 
who these characters are and where they're coming from and things like that. But it's not a typical musical. It's not like everybody stops to sing a song to move the story forward. The songs do explain a lot about characters' motivations and histories and stuff, but they're usually sung within the context of a concert or a family sit-around or that one guy who is passing on. Like, these aren't songs that are part of the universe, I should say. These are songs that exist within the universe. So, I mean, another example would be like Tarzan has a lot of songs, but it's not a musical because only one song is part of the narrative narrative. The rest are kind of outside the narrative explaining things. Uh, And the only song that is in the narrative narrative is Trash in the Camp. And in my opinion, that's not a very good song. Personal opinion, of course. And of course, we have Toy Story where they have narration style songs as well. But you don't see the characters stopping and expressing their thoughts and moving the story forward by breaking out in the song. The song is playing in the background. And so like when at the end of Coco, when uh, Miguel is like singing the song to his family and stuff. He's on stage. It's like this is this song is not out of place for reality. So it's probably going to be a debate that's going to rage for quite some time. But in my opinion, Coco is not a musical. It is a drama that has songs in it. That's my opinion. But here's the thing: if you think Coco is a musical, then go ahead. And by the way, the fact that Disney is considering bringing Coco to Broadway also doesn't make it a musical because they did the same thing to Tarzan. And again, I don't think Tarzan is a musical musical. In fact, if you've seen the Tarzan Broadway musical, which I have, you'll notice that all of the songs that were in the movie, uh, well, they were kind of weird on stage. Like, it was pretty clear these songs were not written to you know, be sung by the characters and all the new songs that were written to move the story forward. Phil Collins is not a Broadway writer. I mean, a couple of songs are good, but I've definitely heard better. All right. So let's talk about the main topic today. And that is some comments that Denis Villeneuve has made about dialogue and film. Now, for those of you who are not aware, Denis Villeneuve, he's a little director who's made this small independent film, Dune Part 1 and Dune Part 2. He also directed movies like Arrival and uh, oh, Prisoners. Very good movie with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, by the way, and Terrence Howard. Oh my gosh, that's a great movie. I really love um, Prisoners. But Denis Villeneuve is one of our great directors these days, like... Whether you compare him to Spielberg or Scorsese, he definitely makes visually stunning films. And, you know, his movies also, ironically, tend to have pretty good dialogue. Well, he made a comment uh, recently, and it's an ironic comment because he has made movies that are well written, and he has been nominated for screenplay Oscars a few times. But he was, um, I guess, being interviewed by the Times of London, and... He admitted in the interview, and he's quoted saying, Frankly, I hate dialogue. Dialogue is for theater and television. I don't remember movies because of a good line. I remember movies because of a strong image. I'm not interested in dialogue at all. Pure image and sound, that is the power of cinema, but it is something not obvious when you watch movies today. So that's definitely a statement right there. 
And a lot of people raise their eyebrows like, what? What about all the iconic lines of dialogue? What about, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. What about, here's looking at you, kid. We'll always have Paris bringing the usual suspects. Casablanca had a lot of memorable dialogue. Uh, what about 1.21 gigawatts? What about all these um, dialogues? And, of course, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I loved. Um, so tell me, Eddie, is that a rabbit in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? Family show. That's about as dirty as I can get, folks. Um, it, kids, ask your parents about it like, later. It, if they feel you should know, you'll know. But, yeah, there's a lot of great dialogue. And he, one of my favorite directors is Woody Allen. And Woody Allen does not make visually stunning movies for the most part. I mean, they look fine. Like, Midnight in Paris actually has a bit of a visual flair, as does Matchpoint. But you watch a Woody Allen film for the dialogue. You're watching... compare Well, let's compare Annie Hall to Star Wars. Like, Star Wars is visually way more interesting to look at. And Annie Hall is all about the dialogue, the script, and the acting. So, I do think that... He's kind of throwing writers and acting under the bus when he says this. Because it's like there are a lot of great lines of dialogue that make movies what they are. There are many great movie quotes. I mean, we haven't even gotten into The Godfather, where I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, is being used by people, even people who have not seen The Godfather. Dialogue can be very important to movies. At the same time, I would not lie. Uh, I would be lying, I should say, actually, uh, if I didn't understand where he was coming from and that he has a point. Because keep in mind, um, there's not just great dialogue in movies, but visuals are admittingly a what really contribute to films. Movies are a visual medium. That is why film students are largely told, show, don't tell. Because here's the thing. When you're reading a book, there's no visuals. There's just dialogue. And even though some writers are really good at making descriptions of things and getting you to understand what things look like and how people are moving Ask anyone who's read The Lord of the Rings, and they will admit that, yeah, it might be a masterpiece novel, but it's tedious as heck. Describing all these trees, the walks, the mountains. I mean, you have a very clear image of what you are picturing, but it's just not super engaging. It's really engaging in Lord of the Rings when they are talking, because it's a book, and that's what it is. When you are on a stage... The acting is what's important because they have to be flamboyant. They have to project. They have to reach the people all the way in the back of the mezzanine. So acting is for the theaters. And what does movies do well? Movies do visuals well. The Back to the Future car going back to 1955 and the clock tower race scene where he's trying to go back to 1988. Then, of course, you have all these visuals from Star Wars, particularly with the Death Star and going through the trenches and stuff. What about the most conic, iconic Indiana Jones see, scenes? The, uh, like, you know, running from the boulder and things like that. In Schindler's List, like, what's the most striking visual in that movie? The little girl with the red coat 
walking through the the horror. And then, of course, you have movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which has so little dialogue, it's all visual. And Lawrence of Arabia, and, and with The Godfather, even with the great dialogue on The Godfather, my goodness, the cinematography in that movie. You know, those are things you do take away from. And this, this year's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, like, what are people commenting on it for the most part? I mean... They're commenting on how great the animation is, the visuals, the editing, the camera angles. Like, Have you ever heard people talk about a camera angle for an animated film? That's how important the visuals are. So I do see where Denis Villeneuve is coming from because there are times when the dialogue can become overwhelming in a movie. It's overexposing. You know, there's got to be a in the middle of the road cut. Like one of the people who's actually really good about this is Christopher Nolan. I've actually read a couple of Christopher Nolan screenplays and it's amazing how much dialogue actually gets removed from the actual final project because Christopher Nolan feels that, look, if you can show it visually, then you don't need to explain it. Like, I like for example, in The Dark Knight, when the Joker is making his escape, after, you know, getting the cell phone blown up in the stomach and everything like that. In the script, there were a few lines of dialogue where he is celebrating his victory. In the movie, those lines of dialogue are not there. Instead, he is sticking his head out the cop car, enjoying the breeze, smiling, reveling in the fact that he stayed two steps ahead of everyone and got away with it. And that shot says more about his character and the situation than any of the dialogue in that movie. Of course, The Dark Knight also has some great dialogue. That whole, you either um, you either die a hero or you live long enough to become a villain. Like, great line. Great line there. But Denvinel New um, says, well, oh, this is why I don't like to... So let me regroup a little bit. So I understand where Denis Villeneuve is coming from. He, especially with something like Dune, because Dune Part 1, and I haven't seen Part 2 of this recording, I'm um, going to see it next week. Uh, Dune Part 1 is one of those interesting movies. I call them a theatrical experience movie. Now, some critics believe that the movie should play just as well in theaters as it does at home. I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, how musicians, they want you to hear their music live. But it's not like you can just go to a Rolling Stones concert anytime you want to listen to a song. You're going to listen to it on a CD or a vinyl or a streaming service. So all filmmakers who make movies design their movies for the big screen. And anything under that is going to be a natural downgrade, but it's the best you can do under the circumstances. But there are some movies that I have talked to people where if they saw the movie in theaters, they loved it. If they saw it at home, they didn't like it as much. Some movies that are like this include Lost in Translation and Roma. And I would put Dune Part 1 in that category. The people who saw Dune Part 1 in theaters were blown away by it, especially those who saw it in IMAX. The people who watched it on HBO Max, they were not as impressed. 
they, they just weren't. And they're like, oh, I guess this isn't a very good movie. It's like, well, well, no, you're not, you're watching the movie in half the experience, if not more than half the experience, off from what the director intended. It's also why people who see Avatar in 3D rave about that movie, but people who see it in 2D, they don't like it as much because it was designed with 3D in mind. And it's kind of like how Casablanca is a black and white film. And thankfully, not a lot of people have seen it other than black and white. But there is a colorized version that does exist. And if you see it, man, is it not as good. I mean, yeah, it's still a fine movie. The dialogue's still there. But the black and white is just so integral to how that movie looks that when you colorize it, it, it just looks awful. And I would say the same thing about It's a Wonderful Life, a movie that more people have seen in color because most Blu-rays come with the black and white and the color version. Uh, but, you know, I showed that movie to my sister-in-law, um, Crystal, for the first time over 10 years ago. Uh, it was going to be the Christmas movie. And she pointed out, oh, it's in color. Let's watch it in color. And I laughed. And I said, no, we're not watching it in color. We watched it in black and white. And she loved it, by the way. Well, she tried to watch it again in color, and she realized it's not quite as good. So that is an example of just how good visuals are for these movies. And Denis Villeneuve is probably a very visual filmmaker. I don't think he's saying that he is not... Well, I mean, he does say he's not interested in dialogue at all. But that's a weird thing to say, considering how dialogue-heavy some of his movies are. I think what he is primarily saying is he would let rather the images do the talking, that movies are for visuals. It's a visual medium. And so that's where he puts his focus on. And by the way, there are other filmmakers that use visuals as a great way of telling stories with minimal dialogue. Like Mad Max Fury Road. I mean, there is a lot going on there without a lot being said. And that's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen, especially in terms of action movies. So this was a very interesting comment. Not going to lie, and I don't know if I completely agree with it. But uh, that being said, he definitely started a conversation, and it's one that I'm going to let you guys continue. Do you agree with these statements? I would love to know if you're watching on one of the, um, or if you're listening to this podcast on like YouTube or something, you can comment below. Uh, otherwise, if this is your first time listening to our podcast and you like it and you want to continue to hear more from us, uh, subscribe to us on either Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Deezer, whatever podcasting service you choose. I am your host, Kevin T. Rodriguez, film critic of iCritic.net, and thank you so much once more for spending some time with me. Take care of yourselves.
yourselves.